Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. This episode was recorded live on August 23rd, 2013 at the High Plains Comedy Festival in Denver, Colorado. So your next storyteller, uh, we actually run this show together. Um, he's my co-host. He's like one of the funniest dudes I know, but doesn't have the internal insecurities to need to do stand-up comedy about it. Um, uh, but please welcome Robert Rutherford. So I'm sitting in a cubicle, and it's got sort of about head height, gray, beige walls that are upholstered. And that's how they separate all the cubicles. And I'm sitting at my desk with this gray Formica countertop on my uh, sanctioned monitor, on my sanctioned keyboard with my sanctioned office chair. Uh, thankfully for me, I had a window uh, in my cubicle so I could actually look out into the out of doors. Uh, but I'm checking my email and a memo comes through from, uh, from corporate. And it's about a new policy. Uh, a change in policy regarding fleet vehicles when we take fleet vehicles out. We had a, a huge number of fleet vehicles, and we could take them out when we were going to meetings or doing field work or whatever. The new policy was you are no longer allowed to pull into a parking space uh, with the front of the car. This is effective immediately. Uh, and uh, is regarding all fleet vehicles. You will no longer pull into a parking space front-wise, front-forward. The reason why is because the mandate of this company, their entire reason for being is to keep their employees out of harm's way. They have a safety policy that is embedded in their core. It's beyond zero. It's they want to get beyond zero accidents. It's mathematically fucking impossible, but it's there. It's literally like they have a TM on that shit. Registered trademark, that's their thing. Trademarked, beyond zero. They want be less than zero accidents. They want to be putting back positive, healthy energy into the universe. It's bullshit because they would just want their employees to be more productive and they don't want to hire insurance premiums. But this was new policy because they were seeing a huge increase in the number of car accidents caused by people backing out of car spaces in tight parking lots and running into other vehicles. So please. All employees no longer are allowed to park frontwise. You must back into every parking space that you pull into because they want your first safe, deliberate move in an automobile to be one that is moving forward clearly with all sight lines defined before you. I fell in love with plants uh, on a sunny day in 2002. I actually remember it. I was crouched down in a field of bees balm, which is this beautiful plant that sort of, it's, it's related to sunflowers. It has these beautiful composite flowers, uh, and each petal comes out like a little, like a tiny little vase from the head of the flower. Uh, I was working as a gardener at a time to pay my way uh, through college working on an English degree, and I was knee-deep in this patch of bee balm. Uh, and it was quiet, and there were northern flickers and brown creepers on the trees, uh, and um, hummingbirds 
all around me. There were hummingbirds that were diving down. They, they drink nectar from the inside of these little vases that come off this composite flower of the bees' balm. And I was surrounded by hummingbirds. They would come down. Because I was crouched down, they would come down to drink from the nectar of these flowers uh, inches from my head. And I would sort of freak out because I have this thing with hummingbirds where I think they're going to drink my eye juices. Uh, and they didn't, but I, it's, it would, that was a real fear for me. And I was working on an English degree, so I think maybe I had this predisposition to fall in love with nature the way that I did. Uh, and I, I fell madly in love with plants. I was working as a gardener. I was hired uh, by a man who didn't want horticulturalists. He wanted writers, painters, dancers, because he thought that the act of maintaining a garden and the gardens that we maintained was an artistic act. It wasn't a one of uh, defining pH in the soils or watering regimes, that like taking care of a garden was a, was a creative act. So he hired me even though I had no experience, and I totally fell in love with plants. There was a sing-song feel to memorizing the Latin names of plants, uh, being able to say Achillea lanulosa over and over again in my head, Chrysothamnus nauseosus. These are just plants that just, they stick in the head. They sing to me. So I fell in love with plants. I ended up getting my degree in plant biology. And I worked uh, construction, depressingly enough, for a year before I got my first job at this engineering firm. My job at the engineering firm was as a biologist. I worked for a team of engineers that worked on uh, transportation projects. So we do the fast tracks, all the light rail stuff. We do a lot of highway projects. And I thought it would be great. I was going to be out in nature. I was going to be collecting data for, uh, that was going to be used to sort of help guide development, that I was going to be having an impact on the way that our world is shaped. I had to wear clothes that made me feel really uncomfortable. I had to wear uh, button-up shirts and khakis and shoes, and I had to work with dudes who really liked sports and hunting, and, uh, and they didn't know how to deal with people because they were engineers, and they certainly didn't like biology because biology sort of served as a counterpoint to engineering. Engineering was building something out of fucking nothing. You were forging from the pain of your own existence something out of nothing with mathematics, pure numbers. You were willing something into existence, and biology was like, it's fucking messy. You can't do that there because there's a turtle. I wasn't very popular at my job. I had a few friends, but I just sort of, got into it, and on my most optimistic days, I held on to that kernel of why I took the job, that I felt I was making a difference. I thought that I was giving my employers information that they could use to do things uh, in, the, in the right way. But after about my first three months there, there was this other part that started to creep into that equation, which was my cynical days, where I felt like I was helping to define the limit to which my employers could rape the earth, which actually is really closer to the reality of that position. Uh, and that sort of started to eat at me. I had a cubicle, a really small one, and then I got a bigger one. And I, didn't, I, I, I started to hate my job. Those days when I was out in the field looking for foxes or chasing dragonflies or not doing my job in Glacier National Park, Montana, because I was on a canoe in the middle of a lake enjoying nature, um, those started to be overshadowed by all of the days that I had to go to meetings with governmental officials defining the lines 
and the limits of all of these environmental factors by talking about uh, prairie dogs. I, I did a whole bunch of uh, research on prairie dogs to understand how I would uh, go out into the field and measure a population, measure a community of prairie dogs. Uh, I understood their social structures, which is really fascinating. I understood their place in the ecosystem, which is really important because there are all these larger order predators that feed on prairie dogs. So like having prairie dogs in a lot of ways is really good for your ecosystem, but not if you want to build a road because there are laws that dictate how you treat them. Part of that research, I also got to learn about all of the legal ways in which you can humanely kill a prairie dog, which includes blowing them up, which includes sucking them into a vacuum that just vaporizes them into bits. Uh, all of these things, and this was all part of my conversations that I got to have with governmental officials. We were not talking about the great parts of prairie dog biology. We were not talking about the system of communication that they developed. We were talking about, well, how do we get little, rid of these little fuckers? How do we do it best? It was lines. It was delineation. That was the nature of my job. I was delineating the natural world and figuring out how we can crush it. A week after I got that first memo, I got another memo. And this one I opened and I was excited to see what it said. It said, new policy regarding fleet vehicles. Effective immediately regarding all fleet vehicles. You will no longer back into a parking space. In the last week, we've had a huge number of accidents caused by people backing into parking spaces because that is not a comfortable action for people to partake in. People naturally pull into parking spaces. So the new policy is that you will pull into every parking space front forward into the parking space. But when you get out of the car, you will take a cone, a safety cone, placed in every fleet vehicle, for your convenience, you will take the safety cone out of the vehicle and place it behind the vehicle. You will leave that safety cone there for the duration of your stay wherever you are. When you get back to the car, you will take the safety cone and place it back into the trunk of the fleet vehicle. And this will put you into the consciousness of the action of reversing out of a parking space. This is for your safety. When you back out of a parking space, you will know, you will have, you will, the safety cone will center you into a mindset of safety so that when you back out of a parking space, you are aware of the fact that you are backing out of a parking space. It's incredibly important. As I worked at my job, I would go earlier and earlier. We had a flex schedule. That's corporate speak for work whenever you want, but we're going to suck it all out of you. We need you to work 60 hours. But I was really strict about my schedule. I started coming in at 9, and then I started coming in at 8, and then I started coming in at 7, and then I started coming in at 6, and then I started coming in at 5.30 in the morning, every morning. At this point, I had a window cubicle. <laughs> I, was, I was fucking hot shit in that office at that point. I had a window cubicle. If I got there at 5.30 every morning, I could watch the sunrise. That was the best part of every day. It was the only part of every day, really, for a long time. I, everything started to crumble, not only from my work. The bands I was in to sort of balance out my horrible work life fell apart. I didn't have bands. My relationship was on the rocks. A relationship of 11 years was on the rocks. Uh, and so I would wake up in the morning and sit on the edge of my bed and, and just have that sinking dread that would just spread from my being as, as I sort of came into consciousness. And I would put on my, my 
poorly ironed pants that were a little high water and didn't really match the well-dressed engineers. And I would put on the, my thrift store button-up shirt and my stinky Oxfords, and I would go get on a train, and I would ride this train, and the, this would be right when the light was starting to change, especially in the summer, getting on a train at 5.15 a.m. It's right when the light starts to change. So there's this little thin carapace of dawn that covers Denver. And I would ride the train downtown, and I would get off the train and walk across the street into the building in which I worked, and I would press that elevator button for the 23rd floor, and I would just stand there and wait and listen for that quiet moment right before everything happened, expectant elevators coming down their shafts that would take me peristaltic up to that 23rd floor where I was going to have to face whatever was holding me up at that time. Thanks. That's Robert Rutherford. I'll have to ask him what peristaltic means after that. Damn it. Uh, your next storyteller uh, is one of my favorite comics. Um, you could see him tonight at 11 at Three Kings. He's part of like one of the best lineups of the whole fest. Um, he's fucking hilarious. He's awesome. Please welcome David Borey. How's it going, guys? Uh, so this is cool. I'm glad I got the low point. Uh, I was really excited when I found out that that's what I was going to be doing. Uh, because I'm not a typical punk bitch comedian, y'all. I have, I, I have a pretty good ace in the hole, or so I thought, for low point. I was, uh, from age 17 to 20, I was like homeless, right? So I thought that that was going to be what I wrote about for you guys. It was like, it was a scary time, and I was young, and I was, I was worried, so I was like, that's it, I'm just gonna talk about that, fuck the mic stand, drop the mic and be out, you guys are gonna love me, but uh, it doesn't work like that, because I thought back on that time period in my life, and I realized that it, it actually wasn't terrible at all, guys. It was pretty, I mean, I was homeless in Aurora, Colorado, first of all, so it wasn't, it wasn't anything, like Hampton, Quincy, I'm known in those streets. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't anything that terrible. And it wasn't, I wasn't like, could you spare a quarter homeless? I was like, hey dude, you've been on our couch for four days and you smell bad and you've run out of funny anecdotes homeless. I was like that kind of homeless. Which isn't, which isn't, isn't really terrible at all. Especially as a kid. It was, uh, it was honestly one of the most exciting times of my entire life. Like, I thought back on it, and it was great. Like, uh, it was, I was 17 years old, so it was still cool to smoke cigarettes. Uh, I got in a lot of fist fights, which I can't, I can't do that anymore. And that's like the best way I've ever found to impress a woman is fist fights. So those three years, I was just like killing it on the fist fight tip. I got arrested, but never for anything that took me to jail seriously. Like, it was like, did somebody whistle for that? That's, that's so weird. We've all done time in Douglas County. I get it. Ah, uh, that's a terrible thing. But it was a, uh, it was a good time. It was, uh, it was probably the most badass, quote unquote, I've ever been in my entire life. I was making my own rules. Uh, so after I thought about that time period, I had to go back through the other, uh, shitty time periods that I thought were shitty in my life and see what was like the low point. And I kind of realized I, everything's been great for me. I've had a good, I've had a really good life, guys. Like, uh, after, so after the homeless time, I realized it wasn't the homeless time. That's not the worst time of my life. I figured college. College had to be it. I went to college for nine months, guys, in Alva, Oklahoma. 
I don't know if you've ever been there. It's nothing but juggalos and rednecks. Like, that's all it fucking is. And it was terrible. I was so, I was so sad when I was down there. I developed a cocaine habit down there. Stayed fat for some reason, but developed a cocaine habit. Uh, your guess is as good as mine on that one. Uh, but yeah, I fucking, and the cocaine led me to hanging out with scare. I was hanging out with this, uh, this 35 year old Mexican mafia guy, and he had just gotten out of prison. So like when you hung out with him, you always had to take your shirt off. Like weird prison type shit. And that's what I was doing. I was like, that must be, that's gotta be the worst time in my life, right? That's gotta be the worst. And then I thought about it. And no, that time wasn't either, that time wasn't terrible either because I was getting like super laid. Right? Like, there's no, there's no other way to say it. I was, I was, I had no money, and I was definitely doing cocaine, and sometimes meth, but I was getting laid all the time in Oklahoma. All the, so how bad, like, I did anal there. A girl let me do anal in Oklahoma. I thought that was never gonna happen to me. I thought that wasn't on the, I had sex in a park! In a park! And the way I see it, outdoor titties trumps meth, as far as like, the good to bad scale, right? So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't college. College wasn't the worst time of my life. So then I thought back to, uh, thought back to my childhood. I was like, my childhood was pretty rough, right? I, uh, I went to a lot of schools. I went to like 12 schools growing up. Uh, I moved pretty much every year till I was 15. Got beat up a lot. Saw a lot of weird, bad shit. Uh, but then I realized that I always had a bicycle and fun dip. And that, how bad can your life be as a kid if you have those two things, right? Like it's, it's still a beautiful ride. Uh, so it wasn't my childhood, wasn't college, wasn't being homeless. Uh, that was the worst time of my life. Cut to comedy, guys. Cut to when I started comedy. And on paper, right, because I do comedy now, that's all I do. I don't have a job or anything. And on paper right now, my life is in shambles, technically, right? Does that make sense? Like, on paper, I'm not doing, like, I'm pretty sure there's a warrant for my arrest in Denver right now. And, like, I don't own anything. I have a backpack's worth of belongings. Uh, I don't know the last time I was paid more than $100 at once. I don't know that, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. That's, that's what that is. Uh, and it's, it's bad. It's bad for me. I, I smell bad a lot because I don't own a lot of clothes. I don't eat meat every week. I'm, like, that kind of poor. And this is the best time of my entire life. This is, this is all that other shit. This is 20 times better. I'm so much happier. Take out the, this is better than the meth, the tits in the park, uh, going to Douglas County Jail. This is better than that. And technically, my, like, I'm not wearing underwear right now, guys. And it's not because I'm like cool and sexy and European. It's because I'm that fucking poor. Right? I'm that fucking poor. And that's where I am in my life right now. So I guess what I have to say to you guys about low points, no such fucking thing, guys. No such thing. Everything's great. It's all fun. That's been my time. Uh, Andrew's, Andrew's not here. Oh, Andrew's here. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. We have two storytellers left. Uh, they're both great. You guys are great for hanging in here. This next guy, um, one of my favorite comedians. When I used to live in L.A., I was always like one of my the high points if this guy was on a show because he's so fucking funny. Uh, please welcome the great Matt Bronger. Keep it going for Andrew, would you guys? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a, this festival already is a genuine high point. I'm really excited to be here, and I, you know, I'm not just you know as my grandparents would say, licking your dicks and tits. I, 
<laughs> Imagine? No. Um, I, I'm just going to do uh, two low points, the low point of my childhood and the low point of my adulthood. Um, I grew up an only child of two very liberal-minded parents who came from massive families. Like, my father has six brothers and three sisters, and none of them have ever lost a fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's not true. I just like putting that at the end. No, uh, uh, and so they never, my dad had a, like a father who never said, I love you, and that kind of thing. So I, which, horrible, but I got the entire opposite, where my dad would, like, make me a sandwich. and go, there's your sandwich. Hey, I love you. And you're like, ugh, dad, stop. Like, you don't have to do that all the time when it's not Christmas. And I'm not shitting on it, but at the same time, when you're a little kid, it, awkwardness is a bit much. But being an only child, I also grew up believing I was a magical golden boy. Because both my parents are teachers, and I learned to read at, like, age two and spoke really well as a kid, like, to the point where, and I was a dick, a dick, because of all that love and all that education, I would judge other kids. Like, a kid had a, I had, or sorry, I had an Ernie and Bert shirt, and a kid came up and was like, Ernie, Bert. And I was like, it's not Ernie and Bert, stupid. It's Ernie and Bert. And the kid's like, Phew. and then my mom grabbed me and was like, don't be a cock. Um... So I grew up thinking, you know, as a little kid, thinking, like, I'm the best and everyone loves me. And here's the low point when I got my comeuppance. My mom jogged me down to my very first school bus uh, to go to school, first day of school, after kindergarten, like real school, like public school. And she puts me on this bus. And I think it was a K through 8 bus because some of these kids had mustaches, like no lie. And I get on with my lunchbox and I look out the window, fully believing I, I, I exist in a haze of, of, of total love from everyone, and I just yell at my mom, bye, mommy, and the whole bus as a chorus goes, bye, mommy, <laughs> and it just died inside of me. Like, all of that, I'm the best and I'm the greatest, just crushed itself inside, and thus a comedian was born. Um, I remember just shrinking into myself, like, oh, you're not like my family, and I've already made myself the worst. Um, my low point of adulthood was uh, the time I left uh, Chicago. I, I reached that point of now or never, of I have to either try to make a living at this and try to make a career out of this, or just stay here and just stay drunk and just wait tables and do stand-up for friends in this, you know, little fishbowl. Um, or I can just, you know, grow a pair and, and try to make it, try to do something. So... I decided to move to Los Angeles because I grew up as an actor and got into stand-up, and that's the place where those two things intersect, uh, as well as in incredible uh, uh, self-centeredness, which I was trying to lose. But I moved, or I went to Portland, Oregon, where I grew up first before I went to Los Angeles, and uh, for like two weeks, hanging out with my parents for two weeks, and uh, went out uh, two nights in and got arrested for drunk driving because I'm a real winner, and like. The thing is, I was never driving in Chicago. Uh, I was just on a bus in a cab, and I didn't mean any harm by it. I borrowed my mom's car, went out and got plowed, and went to a friend's house who was cooking steaks for us in an oven probably for two hours to the point where I'm like, you need to take those out. I'm starving. And he's like, nah, give it a little time. Like that asshole who can't cook but thinks, you know, he's like, trust me, it's fine. Like there's smoke surrounding the room now. And I finally was like, screw this, I'm going to get Taco Bell, you know, which honestly is to, to blame for most DUIs. We can admit that. If we're going to sue liquor companies and cigarette companies for cancer, mm, they're not blameless. So 
Uh, I got in my mom's car and was driving, and I literally, I got six blocks away and literally had this epiphany. Oh, I'm not on a bus. I'm in control of this rolling box of metal, right? And as soon as I had that realization, which, of course, if you're ever driving drunk, don't ever do it. But if you find yourself driving drunk, go really slow, because that'll fool the cops right away. I slowed way down, and, of course, a cop pulled me over, and I, uh, I failed the sobriety test. I think in record time. Like, I think I fell out of the car. Like, I got out and was like, hey, guys. And, like, this is just how I kind of walk. And, like, one leg up was just like, like, that's the longest. And the, 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 the cops just like, all right. Like, you're adorable. Get in the car. And they drove me uh, to down to the, to, the, to the jail and um, put me in a room and said, okay, blow into this breathalyzer. And I did a thing where I, I just thought if I made a noise but didn't blow, I could fool them. So I'm like, whoo. And the guy's like, fucking blow into it. Stop that. And the other guy's like, come on, it's kind of funny. You know, come on. Like, it was like good cop, bad cop. Like one guy's like, I think he's hilarious. I think you need to calm down, Dave. Less coffee. And uh, they cuffed me. And, oh, and I should add this, I got arrested for drunk driving while wearing a Kenny Rogers T-shirt. That is moi in the white trash cookbook right there. And they, they cuffed me, and, they, and this is how drunk I was. They, they put the, the, the little bracelet, like this one, except it has your face on it. It has your mugshot right there. So it's me and Kenny Rogers on the, on the wrist. And I remember looking at it and going, hey, it's me. Ha, <laughs> like awesome, like fucking idiot. So... They cuffed me, and they put me in a cell by myself. And I'm like, how, am I this dangerous that, like, I don't get to be with anyone else and I'm cuffed? So I, you know, was cuffed behind my back, too. And I remembered seeing in cool spy movies when guys would just take the cuffs and put them out, down and around. But I'm built like this. I'm all legs. I'm 6'4". I got down to my knees and couldn't get them back past my butt and was just sitting there just locked. Just like that, for like a half an hour. So when the cops came to let me out, the guy opened the cell and went, Well, what happened here? Like I'm a child. that got his hand stuck in the candy counter and wouldn't take it out and let go of the jawbreaker or whatever. Like I'm a dog. Like, ah, look at him. And I'm like, just uncuff me. So they uncuffed me, and I walked home, which is like three miles. I walked all the way home. Like I didn't have, I felt so ashamed. I didn't have the heart to tell my parents. When I got inside... I laid in the bed in my in my the room I grew up in, and my my dad was like a ghost. I just hear him in the hallway. Where where's the car? Like, Gah! hey dad, and I I told him, and I was just so ashamed. I was almost crying. He's like, well, let's go to sleep. We'll deal with it tomorrow. Um, and so I went to court and found out that you can do a program called the deferral program, which is where you go to uh, alcohol counseling center and you go to AA twice a week, uh, and it takes four months. Like, as long as you didn't hurt yourself or anyone else or no property damage, you can do it for four months. It's wiped off your record. Problem is, you can't do it in the city of your choice. You can't do it to the, in, the, in the city you're moving to. You can't go back to the city you left, do it there. You have to do it in Portland, right? So I was, in effect, sentenced, because I had nowhere else to live, to live with my parents as an adult for four months by state decree, you know? Like, you have to live with your parents. Like, there's nowhere else I could live, Right? So now I'm back in the house I grew up uh, in from the age of 13 with neighbors that I grew up around looking at me after I'm there a couple weeks going, oh, things didn't work out. 
Matt moved home. Yeah. And I couldn't be like, no, no, no. I'm not a scumbag who fucked up his life. I drove drunk. All right, forget it. Yeah, same, same difference. Same difference. It's a worse scumbag I am because I endangered other people's lives. Like, you know, if I was just smoking weed in a basement somewhere and got kicked out of my apartment, that would be more understandable. But so I, you know, I, I, I had those four months. And the, here's, here's the warm and fuzzy part of it. Um, when my parents inevitably pass away, I'll always have that four months that I spent with them uh, uh, and got to know them. Because I left town, left home when I was 17, you know. And, like, it was embarrassing and, and horrible in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But it was also incredibly educational. There's like, I was in a counseling group of people that were court-ordered. I could have just taken the, I could have just, you know, all right, it, here's, my, here's all my money and keep it on my record and fuck your deferral. I did it. But I, my choice, there are people who were in that group that the court was like, you need to be in this counseling group because you can't live without meth. And it'd be people that you would never expect, you know, like someone looks like a, a, a rich mother of four was just like, oh, I just go, I love meth and blew my mind. And like the older guy who uh, couldn't believe I'd never been dumpster diving, you know, like he's just like, what? Like, no, never. It's amazing. You go over there cleaning out an estate and you. I've gotten, literally, seven chandeliers. I'm like, what the hell would you do with seven chandeliers? Also, you're my hero, man. That's amazing. Um, and I, and I uh, you know, so it was, it was horrendously embarrassing, but it really taught me that that is the most commonly committed crime uh, there is, really. And it's, it's something we don't really think about. It's kind of like you grow up drinking and, you know, the age of nine, right? And, uh, no, but you, you, you grow, you know, you, you drive around with a little bit of buzz and you're just like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. And then you learn all the lives have been ruined by it. And you're just like, oh, fuck, you know, I should not do this. Like Kyle Kinane, who also has one, had a, had the best analogy for it I've ever heard, uh, before, like a month, like a prophecy before he was arrested for his in Los Angeles, where he was just like, oh, I just feel like we're like, it's like Goodfellas, man. We keep driving drunk. They're closing in, man. They're closing in on us. We can't <laughs> keep doing our mafia bullshit of driving drunk, you know? It's like they will get you. So be careful and, and don't drive drunk. Um, it's not a very happy uh, way to end my little low point, but that was my low point. Thanks so much, you guys. That's Matt Bronger. And that's actually pretty good advice for a comedy fest. Yeah, don't drive drunk. There's... There's a bus that you can get on. Okay, your final storyteller, uh, you only have one chance to see her comedy night, unlike everybody else on the show where you have multiple chances. You only get one chance tonight. It's at 9 p.m. at Three Kings. Uh, she runs one of L.A.'s very best shows called Put Your Hands Together at the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, which is also a great podcast, and she's also a great author. Google her. I don't have the links on me. Please welcome Cameron Esposito. Guys, let's hear it for everybody. Let's hear it for Andrew, hosting a great show. And you, you're in a, you're in a, you did it. We're high plane and already we're plane and high. It's so plain and high. What a great show it's been. And you should catch all the stuff at the festival this week. And this is so rad that Andy and uh, Adam, Kate and Holland, Andy, Joe and Adam, Kate and Holland put together this show. Okay, so let's talk about uh, stories about my life. First of all, I want you to know right up top, I am uh, hot. Right now I'm physically warm and I am wearing a gray t-shirt. So as I'm going to continue to be up here, I'm probably going to sweat through this t-shirt. And as we experience that together, I want you to know that I know. So I don't want you to have... Because sometimes when, when you're experiencing that for a performer, 
you know, you can kind of get in your own head and you guys are like, oh my God, does she know? You know, like, especially for a woman, like how unattractive, you know, because, you know, as a woman, you really have to be able to have, you know, sell it on sex and not sweat, you know, really just, uh, you know, pulls and vag really more than anything. And uh, um, so anyway, yeah, I do know I'm going to be sweating. Uh, this is a, this is a, a, a it's a men's um, T-shirt. That I'm really liking the way men's t-shirts are fitting me lately, so I wore it. I took a risk. I'm a, uh, oh, speaking of poles, I'm uh, obviously a giant homosexual. This is on purpose. I made all these decisions separately. I'm gonna go for a men's tee, real tight pants, boots, and this haircut. I love this haircut because it's, you know, it's like approachable, but, but not. You know what I mean? Got everything covered. Um, and I have. Uh, well, here's the thing. You know, I grew up a kid in the suburbs of Chicago, and I didn't know I was gay because I didn't know you could be gay. Uh, I like didn't actually know that was a thing that existed in the world. I thought that it was a made-up. I thought it was like a leprechaun. Like I thought it was like for parades. Do you know what I mean? Like not for real life. I didn't know you could. I didn't know you could be gay. I didn't know you could. I didn't know there was an option. So I just thought that like, I just thought that we all wanted our boyfriends to go home right now. Do you know? What I mean? Like I all. I just thought that all women wanted to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer with their boyfriend and then send him home. Like I had rules for the men that I dated. I had like rules like no kissing my shoulders ever, which I don't think straight. Women have rules like that. I don't know, but uh, I feel like shoulders are open territory. Fair game. And I was like a little gay kid, too, like just the, the littlest gayest kid. Uh, I mean, like, and, and just not, like, so not figuring it out. Like, so not figuring it out in these moments where it was like, like, there's this Christmas video of me that I look back at that is amazing. My older sister's three years older, and I am, I am seven in this video, and she's like ten. And uh, she opens her present. And first of all, also, my sister was a, my older sister was a ballerina. So she's a 10-year-old ballerina, impossibly long Matt Bronger-style legs. And I was like a, like a, like a, you know, I mean, Beth played field hockey in college. I, I, I played rugby, obviously. I had to. <laughs> Contractually obligated. <laughs> had to fulfill those credits. Um, but I played, like, you know, so I've, like, I love my body, but it's athletic. You know, it's always been light. So, like, there's, like, a ballerina, and then there's me. And I also had crossed eyes and an eye patch and a bowl cut and glasses and braces. <laughs> In this video, I am wearing a T-shirt that is baggy everywhere, except I turn around at one point, and it is tight in the butt. Like, have you ever seen a, Like, how do you even... How could it just be tight in the butt? My older sister opens her present. She goes, oh, my God, it's elbow-length gloves. Like, she got evening wear. She goes, oh, my God, it's elbow-length gloves. I turn to the camera. I open my present, and I turn to the camera. I go, it's a black Ken! Like, I, that's what I wanted. So I collected Kens, and I didn't have a black one. I actually lost my mind. Like, that is how deep I said that. It's a black Ken! Like, in the, I'm seven. A seven-year-old kid with an eye patch. I got a black can, mom and dad. So it took me a long time. I was also raised very Catholic, which I think also contributed to that. You know, like I was just like the kind of kid. Like we played mass when I was a kid. That was a thing that we played. 
And that's how I know that the best Eucharist is either thinly sliced bananas, but you got to use those immediately. So you don't want like brown Jesus body. Or better cheddars also work. And if you're like acting out um, the, you know, the birth of Christ, you just go into the basement, you get a brown piece of Tupperware and a yellow pom-pom, and you deliver your Cabbage Patch kit into that. So these are just some tips and tricks if you guys are looking to recreate my childhood in your own house. So that kid, you know, that kid. And then in high school, I dated the captain of my football team, which is so fucking awesome. I love that looking back on it. Like, I love that. I'm so happy that that's true. He was like, and not like, like, he, like I was the captain of my swim team because I had a great personality. Like, I was always like, guys, see you later. I'm showering. Like, you know, you, did anybody have that kind of captain of a sporting team? Okay, never mind. They were swimming. I was like, I'm just so, f-. anyway, they, they thought I have a great personality. He was like a great athlete. Like, he ran a 4 4 and it had 4% body fat. All fours. And also, I remember that now because that's what I, I looked into the face of that and I said, mm-mm, no. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's how I know. That's perfect. So I was dating that guy. I was also the mascot of our football team. So he was the star of the football team. I was a giant red bird. And he would score a touchdown and I would flap my arms the appropriate number of points, and my high school class voted us couple most likely to live happily ever after. <laughs> Which is what happens when you go to a Catholic school. They're just like, not, they're like, oh, that bird and that football player are going to make it. So I was in college, and I went, to a, I went to Boston College, very Catholic school. And one thing that is true about that school is that there's a, it's very cool and hip to be social justice That's actually a phrase people use on campus, social justice And what that means is like, uh, everything you wear is corduroy and held together with safety pins. You have a Jansport backpack that you recycled from your younger cousin. Uh, and you probably care about uh, Darfur and Tibet. You know what I mean? Like, plus other things, you know what I mean? Palestine and Israel like you're like that kind of kid you're just like at the front lines just like I agree with everybody and you know I'm just gonna go to school about it so one thing that we did at this at this college was that we would go and we would take these trips to third world countries and then we would go and just like look into the eyes of the poor and just like really you know be with them sort of in solidarity and understanding their experience, and then go back to the university that our parents were paying for. It's really fucking nice of us, you know what I mean? That was spring break. It was just shots for everybody. We delivered shots to the third world. So I, I before I went on, uh, I went to, I went on a trip to Kingston, Jamaica, inner city Kingston, Jamaica. But before I went to this trip, I want to set up a couple things. So at this time, uh, I've broken up with my high school boyfriend, and I'm dating two men. Now one of them is like a really tall, really fit former track star dude. And he's also, I don't know if you guys have ever met anybody who like their entire life is a part, like, like, it's like life was his keg stand. Do you know what I mean? Like, and nobody had to hold his feet. Like he was constantly just like, who's in, who's in? Jello, like just like making a jello, like at a grocery store, just mixing jello, just like, who's in? You know, like that, did you, did you just know that guy? He was up all the time. He was a really aggressive dude, really tall. I was also dating another gentleman Oh, also, here's a little side note on that gentleman. Uh, his, that guy, that tall guy, 
uh, he had the same first and last name. And I'm not gonna tell you what it is because it's actually super specific and weird and like highly Googleable. But like imagine somebody being named Carl Carl. Like that's the kind of, it was dating, he was life of the party, he also had the same, for, like people were like, oh, you're seeing Carl Carl? Cool. I was also dating a guy named Kyle. Now, Kyle had the biggest hookah on campus. Like, he was that dude. He, he had long hair and a, and a beard, and he would wear a white robe and a rope belt to parties. Like, to be hilarious. So, actually, another awesome detail is that facially, he looked like Elvis, but then wearing all that, he looked like Jesus. So he looked like Jesus and Elvis, which, of course, is the king of kings. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I was dating those two duels. I was dating Kyle. I was dating Carl Carl. And just like, just like openly, just like, oh, God, like, just like, just like, I don't have like specifically important feelings about either. You know, just like thinking like, this is how women just like, I'm just playing the field. I hate it when they kiss me. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, and then I met this woman when we were going down to take this trip to Kingston. And she was another person that was taking this trip with me. She went to school with me. And she was... Um, I, didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but she was like also, she was going through a tough time in her life. Um, she was going through like personally a tough time. And I didn't know uh, that that is something that I love <laughs> in a woman. Like I love a woman in crisis. <laughs> like if I see a woman sort of crying in the corner, I want to go into that corner and push her up against it. <laughs> it's not something I'm proud of. I know why I do it. So it's that if she's having problems, then I don't have to think about my own. It's like, I can just, I can just be like, no, no, we should fix you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a gay person who didn't know I was gay until I was 20. And I did wear an eye patch for six years of my childhood. But probably it's you that's fucked up. <laughs> Let's talk about your parents. You know, that whole thing. So it was distracting uh, myself. And she was going through this time of crisis. I didn't know at the time, but I was, like, I was loving it. We were in Kingston, Jamaica, and we took this trip to a shanty town that was built on a garbage dump. So, like, it's a, it's, um, you know, District 9 would be a, would be a thing. Uh, just imagine, like, people fishing in rivers of Mountain Dew, that kind of thing. Or, like, a corrugated tin roof house, and then there's a goat tied in front of it. It's a restaurant, and it says, today's special goat, and then there's just an arrow to that actual goat. Who's like, well, anyway. Um, so it's like a pretty specific place. And we went there to this shanty town, and this woman was just like, she was so into the work. She was so into feeling other people's pain. And we came back to campus, I just felt like I wanted to be her new best friend. Like I just wanted to have lots of sleepovers in the same bed, all night, close. Just shoulder to shoulder, or whatever else was bumping up against each other, you know, that kind of thing. And one particular night, we split a bottle of yellowtail, the big kind, uh, that extra large bottle of yellowtail wine, and that'll lead to almost anything. I don't remember what she said, but there was this moment where she said something like probably about poverty or whatever, and I just leaned in, and I kissed her. And that was the first time I ever kissed a woman. It's also like the first time I ever understood anything about my own identity. If I could describe it to you guys, it would be like... It was like the moment in Memento where he's like, oh, my tattoo, or like it's like Joaquin Phoenix being like, swing away, like it's like a one move Rubik's Cube solve 
on my little gay body. It's the director's cut. It's me watching the bed. Because like, I just remember I looked at, like, in my entire life, every moment flashback, I was like, oh! The bird doesn't end up with a football player! So I thought it was awesome, amazing. And I will also say this, that um, on my way home from that experience, I also went and visited the men I was dating because it was in college and kind of having a weird time. And I went and hung out with them for a little while and then I kissed them both as I left. So I kissed three people in one night. And this is important because the next morning I woke up and I remember feeling like very changed. And I remember feeling like I gotta call that woman. I gotta tell her that we're gonna be together forever. I gotta tell her she's the one. And I also have to tell her that I feel itchy. Because here's what's amazing. I didn't know this, but while I was in that shantytown, Kingston, I had contracted facial ringworm. It's a fungus, and it grows in a perfect circle. Bumps, I had it on my face. So let's say you really want to fuck with a very Catholic kid who has just realized she might want to date women for the first time in her life. Have her wake up the morning after that kiss with like her own skin rejecting itself like the exorcist, like in the shape of an O, probably for ovaries. Like have her just look in the mirror and just the shame, you know, the scarlet letter. <laughs> I ended up figuring out what it was. And the other awesome thing is that it's super crazy contagious. So I had to call three different people and say, um, hey, how itchy are you? <laughs> and it ended up, it ended up working out because uh, it was like a low point and a high point. I mean, because that woman that I kissed, she ended up being my first girlfriend and we dated for like three and a half years. Um, and those other guys, I only dated them for like another year and a half. Figured it right out. You guys, I'm Cameron Esposito. Have a great rest of your night. That's Cameron Esposito. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about The Narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.